few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me this gif or this image that you see above. It says this, trying to fit all of my church and family responsibilities into my December calendar. And it's somebody trying to shove, of course, a giant couch into his car. Now, I don't think that this person sent me this simply because I'm a pastor and there's, you know, the classic um, just stereotype that pastors are super busy in December. I think this is an image that many of us would probably resonate with. Put up your hand if you resonate with this image in December. Okay, yes, that's fair. But the truth of the matter, you know, is I think that although December does tend to be a fairly chaotic month for many of us, it's indicative of a problem, I think, that persists throughout the whole year. Author and theologian Andrew Root has a book entitled uh, When Church Stops Working, and it's actually um, a book that some of our spiritual leaders, elders and deacons, are working through this year. And he makes the roundabout argument that it's a really dangerous attitude For us to think that life is all about doing more, about productivity. We've talked about this in previous weeks. He says that we live like this because we often find our meaning in how much we do, in how much we achieve, in how much productivity we can generate. And in the case of December, we might say that the busier we are in this month, perhaps actually the more meaningful we feel. The busier we are, the more that we do, the more meaning that we experience. I have to go to all the festivities, all the plays. I have to watch all my favorite films. I have to get all the right gifts in order to truly embrace this season. I have to do it all really well. I have to decorate my house perfectly. I have to get everything nicely put. I have to do this on that Friday and this on this Saturday and this on this Friday. Appease this family, appease that family, and it's all going to be joyful, right? I want all the joy but without the stress. I want all the busyness, but without the fatigue. I want all the gatherings without the busyness and the excess worry, which we try this every year, and somehow it never seems to be possible to do that. And perhaps we struggle with this because we're searching for meaning in the wrong places. Not because all the festivities that we go to and the gatherings we attend are wrong in themselves, as if we shouldn't be doing them, but because we're putting too much weight on them. Maybe we're putting too much weight on the wrong things. Root says that the main pressure point on people today is that they need to be busy doing important stuff, right? That's what gives them meaning. It gives us meaning and purpose to be doing important things. But what's important? Maybe we need to actually redefine what we call important. Maybe we need to change our whole perspective on what counts as important. If I want to be busy doing important things, what are those important things that I want to be busy doing? If if you were to write a list of all the things that you actually find important, if you were to write a list of all the things that actually matter, what would that list look like? Probably a lot simpler. Because the reality is that we'll all get to a point in life where we actually can't keep up anymore with what we want to do, with what our our former selves desired to do, and all that productivity. We'll get to a point where we actually can't keep up. And maybe we'll actually wish that we had trained ourselves a little earlier. I think many of you are probably familiar with the story A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I recently had the opportunity to see a stage version of it. You know, there's, all, there's the movies, the, the old black and white one I think is the best. Um, but I got to see it on live, st- like, or in live, um, on stage. 
A good friend of mine had directed it. And if you're not familiar, it's the story of a crotchety old man named Ebenezer Scrooge who has spent his life away caring only about money and productivity. And in very brief, he ends up being visited by three spirits on the night of Christmas Eve that completely change his life around and show him what life is really meant to be about. And for the first time, I think, it was a little embarrassing because I was sitting next to this friend of mine, but I found myself choking up. This has never happened. I watch this movie every year, but maybe seeing it live just changed something for me. I found myself choking up because of the change that can happen even in just one night. And the fact that peace had so overwhelmed this character that his darkness shifted to light. And his life then became about completely different things. His whole life was reprioritized. He had received something. And his life then became about the busyness of receiving that thing and then sharing it with others. Those were the important things that mattered the most. And perhaps then there's no better way to embrace this season than actually to be wrapped up in busyness, but in the busyness of something totally different. Not necessarily to change our busyness, but to change what it is that we're being busy about, if that makes sense. To be busy about receiving. To prioritize ourselves around this idea of receiving. To embrace the true heartbeat of Christmas is actually to take a deep breath in the stillness and to simply receive that which is most important to us. That's what I want to argue this season is actually about. It's about being busy about receiving. Receiving what exactly? Well, to that, we're going to go here. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 15. The words will be on the screen, but you can also turn in your Bibles if you have them with you. It's a very familiar story, but I want to encourage you to just be attentive to the details, particularly when we get to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And then there were shepherds, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven 
and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, there's, there's a lot in this passage that we could touch on. The significance of the census, the story of Joseph and Mary, the actual birth of Jesus. But today we're going to just focus ourselves on this little event that takes place in the middle of a field, just outside the city of Bethlehem, where a bunch of shepherds are just minding their own business, tending their sheep, but are stunned to silence by the sudden appearance of angels who sing a song that has been celebrated and sung at children's nativity scenes and holiday hymns for centuries. Starting at verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. All right, let's note some of the language here. There are shepherds, okay, so the lowest of the low in Greco-Roman society. Nobody looked at shepherds as a high occupation. Even Jewish people had started shifting their perspective on this because the reality was that as a shepherd, you couldn't go to Jerusalem, you couldn't go to the temple, you could barely even go to the synagogue to receive teaching and to do all of the ritual cleansing types of things, all of the religious ceremonial things. You couldn't do them because you were so busy having to tend to your flock. So shepherds were the lowest of the low in any kind of Jewish or Greco-Roman society. Not to mention that these shepherds are living out in the fields. They are camping, literally, out under the open sky. They don't have a hard roof over their heads. They have no permanent residence. They're homeless. And they're watching, not in the middle of the day, when it's, of course, easier to do your job, but in the pitch black of night, when predators and thieves would most commonly be prowling around. So these guys, assuming that they're all men, are on high alert. They're watching. Okay? They're in the dark and they're watching. They're having to keep track of their precious, precious sheep. Ugh, precious sheep. They're watching. And there's something deeply meaningful, I think, here when we simply consider the circumstances of the shepherds, when we actually just pause and think about what this would have been like for them. For these shepherds, and, you know, we're talking about a day and age where there's no streetlights, okay? Cities aren't lit up like they normally are in our modern day and age. There's no light pollution. So it's dark. It's dark. And we are all, all of us, are much more vulnerable in the dark. Whenever it's dark, and I'm talking here either literally or figuratively, we are far more susceptible to being fearful, to feeling overwhelmed, Darkness can feel like a cloud closing in on us, which is, which is often why our response in, in seasons of darkness, again, however we want to think about it, is to kind of clench in, to tighten up, to crawl into a corner, to hide away. We don't want to be ex- any more exposed than we already are. It's why winter in this part of the world can, can be such a difficult time for people because darkness actually has this capacity to make us feel small, closed in, almost claustrophobic, right? You get up from work and it's dark. You go home from the office, it's dark. It's never ending. It's just never ending. This past week, we literally just had the shortest day of the year. Particularly for those who struggle with seasonal effectiveness, this is very difficult. I'm not one of them. I am one of them. I've become one of them. I married an African. It's made it very difficult. But Advent then comes at the perfect time of the year for we who live in this part of the world. Because it's in Advent that we're reminded, we're asked to be reminded 
of the greatest light. As Isaiah prophesied, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Imagine being one of these shepherds in the dark of night, lit only by little lanterns around you. And then all of a sudden, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Terrified. Why terrified? We so often glaze over this, and we're so used to, you know, angels on, on treetops and, you know, the, the archangels with the, you know, the wings coming out, you know, blowing their trumpets. We're so used to those images, we forget that angels are actually, in Scripture, God's mighty warriors. When God wants to send a messenger, he sends one of these. And it's reflective of often, in, especially in Old Testament Scriptures, whenever kings would go out to battle, and a victory or defeat had been achieved or accomplished, they would send a messenger back to the city to report on what had happened, hopefully the good news that had come. They would send one of their soldiers. So when God wants to send someone to get something done, he sends one of his mighty warriors. He sends a messenger, a soldier of the Lord, bringing news and saying to these shepherds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Don't be afraid. We see this phrase peppered, not only throughout Scripture, but specifically in the narrative of Jesus' birth. Don't be afraid, the angel says to Zechariah in the temple. Don't be afraid, the angel says to Mary. Don't be afraid, the angel says in Matthew's gospel to Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And here, the first thing that comes out of the angel's mouth is the exact same phrase, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because it's often in the darkest of night that we are the most afraid. In the dark nights of the soul, in the places of our greatest vulnerability, in dark situations that seem to have no end, no hope, no resolution, it's it's in the darkest moments that we are often the most afraid. But what the angel assures these shepherds and what the angel assures us is that the darkness is no longer as dark as it once was. The angel shines the glory of God into the darkness and professes that he brings good news. I bring you good news that will mean great joy for all people. Oh my, could we use some good news in our world right now? Couldn't we? even just in our own cities, even just in our own individual lives, we can use, we can always use good news. Good news to calm our hearts, to settle our anxieties, to keep us from worry. Good news that allows for some relief to the things that we're afraid of. We need a light to break into the darkness of our fears which is exactly what the angel says has happened. Because verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Now, somebody, for someone to be born in the town of David implies that he's a king. So not only is this babe a king, but he's also a Savior. Oh, and he's also the Messiah. Oh, and he's also the Lord. The angels are proclaiming that God has come down. The angels are ushering in, in other words, the presence of God. And there may actually be some echoes here 
to the story of Jacob in Genesis 28. If you'll remember, if you know this story, Jacob has left Laban, his, his cousin, and he, he finds himself in this open field. He lays down on a rock. He falls asleep. And he has this dream of angels ascending and descending from heaven. And the text actually is often translated to say that God's above, because that's often what we think about. But you can actually read that in Hebrew as God is actually on the ground next to Jacob. He's beside him. He's come down. In other words, the angels that he's seeing have ushered in the presence of God. And he's now with him. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, in this case, this also fits with the theme of Emmanuel, which literally means with us God. God has not come through any symbol or natural event. He's literally come down in person, in flesh, in utero, with us, not over us, not under us, not against us, not avoiding us, with us. With us. And it's a truth. It's, it's good news that deserves more than just one angel singing about it. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God. Now, I'm not convinced that this is the kind of news especially under these sorts of circumstances, to these kinds of people, that anyone would have expected would bring God glory. Bring him our greatest sacrifice? Yes, glory. Offer him our most excellent worship and our highest praises? Definitely. Bring him all of our tithes and offerings. Offer him our whole selves. Follow all of the right ways of living. That makes sense. Bring God glory, yes. But this Tell me, how does this in any way bring God glory? How does this bring him glory to do this? How does it bring us peace? Well, let's, let's think about this. Think about our situation from the very beginning, okay? God makes humanity in his image. We are made in the image of God. But then sin renders Adam and Eve no longer accurate image bearers, right? It taints that image. It taints that image. They can't reflect his glory in the fullest way anymore. They still, there's still a hint of the image there, but they can't reflect him, right? Being an image bearer is about reflecting God, being his image, being his representatives. It's why the relationship with Israel was so fraught and so disappointing, so brutally difficult, because Israel failed to represent him, to mirror him to the other nations. We talked about this in our Jeremiah series, to bear his image, to make his name, what he's about, his personality, what he cares about, known to the world. They didn't do that. They couldn't mirror him. But Jesus, Jesus, as Emmanuel, so you got to see, all of this is leading up to this moment. Jesus, as Emmanuel, as God with us, and as Colossians put it, is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. That is what brings God glory. Glory. 
to have a perfect representation of him on earth, representing what he's about, showing the world, this is who I am. This is what I care about. This is who I am. We see that in Jesus. And already now in this story, just in how this story is going about, we see a reflection of who God is. What he's like. What is he like? Well, for starters, he's the kind of God who will let himself sit in a woman's body for nine months and then be born as a fragile human being who can't even lift up his own head, who has to depend on his mother for absolutely everything. He who made Mary let himself depend on her for everything. And it's absolutely mind-boggling. And frankly, why Christianity is often the scorn of, of other religions and, and philosophies, because this is just so, so low. It's so demeaning. It's so belittling. No God would ever do this. No God would ever demean himself and belittle himself to come so close to, to human messiness, not to mention sort of our bodily ickiness of our humanity. No God would ever do this. But he did. He did. Do you remember, do you remember the story of the bleeding woman later on in the Gospel of Luke? She's been struggling with bleeding for 12 years. Um, she's going around, all of, all of society calls her unclean, unclean, unclean. You remember this story? Jesus heals her. Jesus allows him to touch her. He doesn't scorn her. He doesn't get mad at her. Jesus allows the two to be in contact and he heals her. Because Jesus does not find anything about our humanity unclean. Jesus literally existed off of the blood of Mary. He sat in her blood. He was born with her blood on him. Jesus was born with blood on him. And this brought God glory. This is the kind of God we worship. Scholar Will Barclay said this, we have a God who knows this life. He knows this life because he lived it. He knows this life we live because he too lived it and claimed no special advantage over common men. He didn't skip a phase, in other words. He didn't just skip over a messy part to go straight to the, the part where he can achieve and do things. He lived it, every part of it. I said this to our staff this past Tuesday, but man, I wish we just knew more. I wish we knew more about what that would have been like for Mary, what Jesus was like as a baby, as a toddler, then as a teenager, and how many times she must have thought or just wondered when she looked at this child, what kind of greatness could he really be made for? Somebody who had such a low beginning, such a humble start, really a, a very rugged start. 
to his life? What kind of glory could he really be made for? But this is what brought God glory. And it gave him joy to do this so that the world could understand what kind of God he really is. This is the means by which he has brought glory. And this is also then the means by which we are brought peace. Those two things actually go hand in hand. What brings God glory is also simultaneously what brings us peace. Because this lowliness that we've been talking about is also the truth about Jesus that makes him so accessible to us, which is the good news that brings us peace. We don't have to climb the ladder to reach him. We don't have to achieve or prove ourselves in any way. I mean, look at the shepherds. They didn't do anything to deserve a concert from the heavenly hosts of angels. This is already grace in the works. They didn't do anything to to prove themselves, to achieve that. This is already God moving and doing and acting without anyone impressing him with anything. They just simply needed to receive it. Jesus shows us how he and the Father are the kind of God who not only reaches down to us, but he comes down and he keeps going down so that no matter how dark our situation is or how chaotic our circumstances are, he is always there. He's always there and he's always willing to go there. Almost 70 years ago now, in in, uh, 1954, an artist by the name of Guido Galetti built a bronze statue of Jesus Christ and submerged it into the Mediterranean Sea just off the coast of um, San Fruituoso. And it's been popularly called Christ of the Abyss. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of tourists go down to find it. There's actually a few of them now in the world, but this was the original. And the only way you can see it is, of course, then to put on all the gear and submerge yourself into the Mediterranean and swim the 56 feet to where the statue is placed. The statue, it was originally meant to be a memorial to an Italian diver who had passed away in that area. And so the idea behind it was that Christ is lifting up his, 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 uh, his face and his arms skyward and offering a benediction of peace. But what's so beautiful about the statue, actually, is that when divers enter into the water to see it, what they encounter is a Christ figure who meets them from below with his arms outstretched towards them to welcome them in. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but get a little emotional every time I look at this image. Christ greets us from below. I think this statue brings God glory because it captures, perhaps unintentionally, what God is all about. A God who simply asks us to receive. To receive him. Because what brings him glory is what also brings us peace. And there's no more important thing to busy ourselves in this season than to busy ourselves with this. This image of a God who asks us to simply receive him. 
So what then is this peace that we receive? Certainly it's the truth and the good news that Christ has come, but it's also, it's also that his coming means that he will meet each and every one of us in every deep and dark corner, in any great place of vulnerability, in every nook of shame and cranny of guilt, and in all of our fears and worries, he meets us there. In fact, he was already there before we ever got there. There's a story in a a recent Reformed worship magazine about a young woman named Cassie Locker who's visually impaired and every year on her birthday, she finds a way to go and see the sunrise so that she can welcome the dawn of another year of her life. But as she explains it, on the morning of her 34th birthday, a few years ago, she actually woke up in a hospital room, having just had a retina surgery, and discovered that she had completely lost eyesight in both of her eyes. She was in the complete dark for the first time in her life, which for many of us is an utterly terrifying thought. All light gone. Now, her sight over time did gradually improve and go back to the way it was. But as a result of that incident, Advent that year was a particularly meaningful time for her. Having experienced complete darkness, even the little bit of light that she could see from the Christmas trees and and the candles in her Sunday morning services inspired her to long for the peace of Christ like she never had before. Because when we've experienced darkness, even just the littlest bit of light can shine hope into our circumstances. She writes that she actually wept as she packed up all of her Christmas decorations at the end of the season because it had been so meaningful for her. But she also knew that she didn't need those lights to be reminded of Christ's presence. She writes this, God never left my side. In the times when darkness tried to keep me from moving forward, God knew the way. Though darkness was all around me, God was walking in the light because he was the light himself, the light of the world. That is the kind of peace that Christ brings. It's not that the darkness goes away. It's not that the darkness goes away. It's that there's a light in the darkness. There's a candle in the darkness, in the pitch black. There's a lantern in the cave. There's a streetlight on a dimly lit path. There's an angel in the field, in the middle of the night. There's a light in the darkness. That's what Christ does for us. He's the light in the darkness. He's the peace in the chaos. The chaos doesn't go away, at least not yet. He's the peace within it. And he invites us in this season and in every season to receive this peace. Himself with his arms stretched wide open already sitting in the dark with us before we even got there. He invites us to receive, to focus ourselves in this season on being busy about this, about receiving his peace, to make him the priority, to make his peace the most important thing that matters most to us. 
So then I can't help but close this message with a few questions. What matters most to you? Where do you need to see God's glory shining into your chaos? Who is this lowly God to you? Do you know him? Do you wonder about him? Is this what you're busy doing? And how might the humble Christ, laying in a manger, reaching his arms out towards you, be inviting you to receive his peace this Christmas Eve? Would you pray with me? Living God, we confess that often this day and tomorrow and many of the days leading up to this day are anything but sitting in the stillness and waiting for your peace. And so we seek to do that now. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, meet each and every one of us wherever we are and enable us to receive even just a mustard seed of your peace. Grant us, Lord, the openness and the willingness to receive you, to remember that you are the light in our darkness and the presence that brings peace to our chaos. We pray this in the powerful name of our humble King who was born in a manger. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.